Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Putin's plot, the U.S. warns of Moscow's plans to bolster Ukrainian border forces. 5G friction, planes switched and flights grounded over the U.S. network rollout. And backbencher beef, Boris Johnson's future questioned by senior party members. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move and a busy week already. Microsoft buys Activision for a window into the metaverse. Wage pressures hit big banks in their ever burgeoning purse. In the UK, Boris Johnson's plight goes from bad to worse. Some 20 no confidence letters reportedly dispersed. Better news, however, from the starry universe. That massive asteroid made an easy Earth traverse. Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck definitely had it worse. Now, on global stock markets, the picture is a touch less adverse. U.S. stock market futures are higher after a tough Tuesday that tipped tech to the brink of yet another 10% correction. Europe, in the meantime, gaining two. Japan, however, slumping almost 3% to a five-month low, while Toyota warns that it won't hit production targets due to ongoing chip shortages. We've heard a lot about that from around the world. Supply chain woes, just one of the issues leading to market uncertainty. U.S. and European bond yields are higher yet again as investors price in more aggressive monetary tightening. U.S. 10-year yields edging ever closer to that key 2% level. And oil currently up more than half a percent, pushing towards $90 a barrel for Brent and WTI. Crude, the UAE, the IAE, sorry, now saying crude will hit pre-pandemic levels later this year. All this amid serious supply concerns. Germany warning it could shutter Russia's Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to Europe if Moscow invades Ukraine. Just one of the things we're discussing in our drivers today. But we do begin with the 5G Ferrari. Major airlines scrambling to change or cancel flights to the United States as concerns mount about potential interference between critical flight systems and new 5G cell phone towers. Emirates, Air India, all Nippon Airways, Japan Airlines, British Airways and Lufthansa all announced service cuts. Pete Montine joins us on this story. So let's just be clear, there has been a delay in the rollout of 5G in the interim surrounding many of these airports, but not before a lot of airlines had to make critical decisions to change flights or change aircraft that they're using. Pete, what a mess. A total mess here, Julia. And the saga really not over, even after AT&T and Verizon said they would delay this. The real issue now, airlines say, is that they've not received enough information from the telecom companies about where they will turn off these 5G transmitters that could cause problems near airports. They say they simply just need more information now. And so they're proceeding full steam ahead as if the 5G rollout was going to happen as normal, as planned. It was supposed to be a a nationwide rollout starting today. Just want you to read now this statement from Delta Airlines. It says, while this is a positive development toward preventing widespread disruptions to flight operations, some flight restrictions may remain. That is the statement from Delta. You mentioned all of the international carriers coming into the United States that are now suspending some of their flights. We know that British Airways has been added to the list, Emirates, Air India, ANA, Japan Airlines. The list keeps growing here. And we've heard from the CEO of Emirates who said that they didn't really know that this was going to be such an issue here in the United States until yesterday 
morning. And he calls it a huge problem, maybe one of the worst he has seen in his airline career. The issue here is all about something called radar altimeters. It's a sensitive piece of equipment on board commercial airliners, cargo planes, helicopters. It beams a radio beam to the ground that gets bounced back to the plane, gives it a hyper-accurate reading of exactly how high the plane is above the ground. But the problem is that same radio frequency is similar to the one used by these 5G transmitter towers. And pilots say that can cause a really big issue, especially when planes are low to the ground in low visibility when seconds really count here. Now, AT&T and Verizon are behind this big push. They've delayed this, as I mentioned. AT&T, by the way, is the owner of the parent company of CNN. And in its statement, AT&T says, We're frustrated by the FAA's inability to do what nearly 40 other countries have done, which is safely deploy 5G technology without disrupting aviation services, and we urge you to do so in a timely manner. Clearly, a lot of finger-pointing here, Julia, to get to the bottom of this and why this became an 11th-hour crisis, but not over just yet. Yeah, it's a communications catastrophe. And of all the critical information that you just told us about what the technical issues might be, we knew that ahead of time. So I, I sort of am puzzled about who failed and, and who should have acted earlier. I mean, as you said, the telecom industry is clearly blaming the FAA and saying, look, guys, you know, you should have warned us earlier and made uh, allowances for this. But you've got the Department of Transport. You've got the U.S. government. You've got the FCC. I'll throw in another regulator there, the communications <laughs> regulator. Yeah. Pete, who failed here? It's a great question. I mean, I think there are so many players involved as you lay out. There's plenty of blame to go around here. The airlines and the aviation regulators say the telecom industry did not give them enough information, even about the specific location of those 5G towers until only a couple weeks ago, which sort of compounded this problem. The telecom industry says the aviation world has known about this for two years. But remember, over those last two years, there are plenty of other problems that aviation was facing, not to mention a global pandemic. So clearly someone needs to get to the bottom here of why this really came to be this huge crisis at such a late moment. It's very Washington in that, you know, people don't really care about this until there is a crisis. We will see, though, of course, many members of Congress already sort of leaning into this and will wonder whether or not they will want to investigate this, whether it was a flop by the FAA or the FCC, Department of Transportation. We know the Biden administration was involved for a little bit. And if it's on the aviation regulators and the equipment manufacturers and all of this, the airlines still, they'll call it their number one safety issue right now, Julia. Yeah, I tell you what, it's a U.S. embarrassment. So they do need to get to the bottom of it because this should never have happened at a critical time for the industry as it it tries to recover. Um, Pete Montine. Later in the show, we'll hear from the CEO of Emirates and the CEO of Airlines for America. So we'll ask them uh, who they're blaming. Um, We shall see. Boris Johnson, in the meantime, in growing trouble with members of his own party. Some are now openly talking about getting rid of him. One has just defected to the opposition Labour Party. The Prime Minister faced fierce criticism in Parliament earlier about alleged COVID rule breaking. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. 
You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Sam Abdelaziz joins us from London. Every Prime Minister's questions now on a Wednesday, I think, becomes a, a grilling and a hot under the collar at the very least moment for a Prime Minister Boris Johnson, suffering the indignity there of even one member of Parliament crossing the floor and moving to the, to the Labour Party from the Conservative Party. Sam, how long has he got? Another really loud and boisterous session today. But, Julia, if you were looking for any answers from Prime Minister Boris Johnson on Partygate, if you were looking for him to respond to allegations, he simply wasn't. He's willing to talk about vaccinations, COVID, anything but Partygate. Every time he was asked, he deflected, he denied, he kicked the can down the road, pointing to an investigation. But increasingly, his own party is not waiting on that investigation. They are running out of patience. Before PMQs even began, there was a very dramatic moment. You pointed it out. One of the members of his own Conservative Party defecting, a very rare act, literally crossing the aisle and going to sit with the opposition. And the hits kept on coming. You also played that soundbite there of a former TAP ally, the country's former Brexit secretary, pointing at him and saying, in the name of God, go. Really important words that strike at the heart of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who's always sort of fashioned himself as a modern-day Winston Churchill. And we already know of a handful of MPs in the Conservative Party now willing to trigger a leadership contest. Some have written a letter uh, essentially calling for a no-confidence vote. And every day this Prime Minister keeps taking hits, Julia. That's the issue. It's not over yet. This is in the headlines now for weeks in this country. And again, you still have that investigation in place. And the prime minister's defense, I think, here grows weaker and weaker. And the opposition pounced on that because, remember, first, there was a denial. There were no parties, no parties, no parties. Then there was an event, but Prime Minister Boris Johnson thought it was a work event. And now his latest excuse is that he didn't know the rules, that the very man who enforces rights, sets the rules, is saying he didn't know he was breaking the rules during one of the events. Uh, I mean, Johnson is a great political escape artist, but I really think he has to be Houdini to get out of this one, Julia. I was about to say, as defences go, that one is incredibly lame. I'm sorry. Telling the British public that no one told him that the garden party at number 10 at the height of the first lockdown was uh, against the government's own rules. Yeah, I'm not having it. Um, I don't think the British public is either, Sam, uh, quite frankly. Um, let's talk about those letters, though, because this is what's critical now. We need a threshold of 54 in order to trigger a, a broader confidence vote. That's what's required. Do the votes come? Some MPs are speculating that they'll come as early as this week. What do we think? Julia, we have not reached that threshold yet. Mm. But what happens is, is this is a poison chalice. So day by day, that domino effect takes place. I hear of more and more Conservative MPs stepping up. And you know what makes the crucial difference, Julia, where I really felt the tide turn was after last weekend. Because what happened is MPs went home. They went back to their towns. And that's when they got flooded with emails from angry voters, frustrated constituents, saying, how could you let this man still be prime minister? I made sacrifices. I followed the rules. I won't vote for you if he continues to be the head of this party. So if MPs start to feel pressure, 
back at home if they start to feel threatened over their own seats, their own electability. And remember, this is Boris Johnson's true success. He's seen as a winner at the ballot. He's seen as someone who's united the Conservative Party, who got Brexit done when no one else could. If he's no longer that winner, if he's no longer able to win those votes for his own party, you could very well see MPs saying, look, it's time to go. You don't represent us anymore. Julia? Yeah, and that's the key. What do the British public want? And we act accordingly. Sam Abdelaziz in London. Thank you. OK, let's move on. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Kiev giving a press conference with his Ukrainian counterpart. This comes after Blinken met with Ukraine's president in Kiev, reaffirming Washington's support. Blinken says Russia has plans to send even more troops to the Ukrainian border. We know that there are plans in place to increase that force even more on very short notice. And that gives uh, President Putin the capacity uh, also on very short notice uh, to take further aggressive action uh, against Ukraine. Fred Pikin is live in Moscow with the latest. That was the Americans putting their money where their mouth is, I think, today, mm. to increasing military aid to Ukraine in a, in a further message of solidarity. The question is, does this change the calculus in Moscow, particularly ahead of that key meeting between the foreign ministers on Friday? Fred, mm. what do you think? Well, I think for the Russians, it most probably doesn't. In fact, the Russians have been saying, for instance, with some aid, military aid that the Ukrainians have received from the Brits. So that's something that could further escalate the situation rather than de-escalate the situation. The Russians have also been talking about the fact that they believe that right now the situation between Ukraine and Russia in that border area, that it is a very dangerous one. And uh, Julia, just a couple of minutes ago, uh, I was at an event of the Valdai Discussion Club here in Moscow, and I was able to ask the Russian deputy foreign minister, Sergei Ryabkov, about the situation. Situation, uh, in that area. He is, of course, the one who led the Russian delegation in those security talks with the United States last week in Geneva. And I flat out asked him just how close he thinks or how, how big the threat is right now of a possible war. Let's listen in. I do believe that uh, there is uh, no risk of a larger scale war uh, to start to unfold in Europe or elsewhere. Uh, we do not want and will not uh, take any action of aggressive character. We will not attack, strike, invade, quote unquote, whatever, Ukraine. It has been said dozens of times in recent weeks, and I just reconfirmed this. We see the threat of Ukraine becoming ever more integrated in NATO without even acquiring a formal status of a NATO member state. This is something that goes right to the center of Russia's national security interests. Very important words there from the Russian deputy foreign minister. He also added that Russia, as he put it, would do everything um, it could to reverse uh, what he was just talking about there. But he did say they would do it by diplomatic means, Julia. Fred, I want to get your uh, impression of the rumblings that we're seeing in Germany and the tensions within mm. the German coalition government, the leverage that the Nord Strom 2 gas pipeline presents, because there is real mm. Uh, suggestion, it seems, perhaps from Germany that this could now be used as leverage over the Ukrainian yeah. tensions too. What do you think uh, on this one? You know what? I think I, I, 
I think that that is probably one of the most important developments that we've probably seen over the past maybe 24, uh, 48 hours or I so. I agree. Uh, because, of course, we, we have seen the fact that the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, she's always been very critical of the Nord Stream pipeline. She obviously yesterday in her meeting here in Moscow uh, with Sergei Lavrov, with the Russian foreign minister, said that... Should there be further aggression on the part of Russia, should there be a Russian attack, of course it would affect the pipeline, which of course uh, is a critical topic in Germany as well. It was never really clear, however, whether or not Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, who is in the party that Gerhard Schroeder is in, who is the head of Nord Stream 2, um, uh, whether or not he was on the same page. And we have heard from people within the Social Democrats uh, in Germany that they were saying, look, they believe this is only an economic project, not a political project. But now we've heard Olaf Scholz also saying that all this would have and could have consequences for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So there might be a real shift in Germany where we are now seeing the Germans, or at least the German leadership uh, in the form of the chancellor, not claiming anymore, as they have for a very long time, that they see this as a purely economic uh, uh, project, to say that, yes, of course, there's a political dimension to this, and yes, of course, it would and could be affected should the situation there near Ukraine further escalate. I think it is a really, really big development. Of course, Nord Stream 2 is also one of those huge points uh, in that whole conflict that we're seeing unfold there right now. Yes. I think it's a little naive, perhaps, to assume you can separate uh, economics and politics on this one. Fred Plaikin, thank you so much for that. Okay, coming up here on First Move, what's it going to take to draw a line under the pandemic? I hear the views of key figures in the debate telling us what still needs to be done. And a 5G failure is the new nightmare for airlines. Why the CEOs of Emirates and Airlines for America are so frustrated. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, coming to you live once again from New York. Three weeks in London, lots of trips past the Shard, and my dog Romeo was treated so incredibly well. Getting him back home was seriously hard, and for me too. Speaking of canines, the fur really flying on global markets this week as investors doggedly price in more aggressive central bank tightening. U.S. equity futures higher right now after a rough Tuesday to January jolt, with all the major averages falling 1% or more. The Nasdaq down 2.5% to the brink of correction territory. Bond yields sure to be key to the direction of stocks from here on out. U.S. 10-year yields hitting two-year highs, creating new headwinds for riskier assets like growth stocks and digital assets like crypto too. Bitcoin softer today and down some 35% from its recent highs. We're going to be discussing that too later in the show. For now, though, with just over two weeks to go until the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics, arriving athletes will be kept away from the wider public to protect them from COVID infections. It's called a closed-loop management system. Selena Wang joins me now. Wow, the battle to continue to contain COVID there ahead of the Winter Olympics. Selena continues. Oh, no, I don't think we have uh, Selena right now. We will try and get back to her. But for now, we will carry on. One of the questions for 2022 around the world, I think, will be when do we perhaps accept we must vaccinate to prevent severe illness and death rather than to stop actual infections? It matters for the development of variant vaccines and for achieving better equity in vaccine distribution around the world. It also matters for defining an end to the pandemic and setting a date for it, both 
right now proving equally elusive. We're all looking for a point where COVID-19 becomes a manageable public health issue comparable to HIV or the flu. And that's when it becomes known as endemic. Well, I moderated a virtual debate on vaccine equity at the World Economic Forum and asked five respected experts, will the pandemic phase end this year? Based on the hospitalizations coming down, I think, um, you know, we will have to make a shift and say at some point, hopefully by, you know, end of this year, that, uh, you know, if you're double, triple vaccinated um, and, and, you know, the hospitalization rates come down and deaths come down, we can make that statement. Of course, that's for the experts to decide that. But I, I don't think that's outside of our grasp if all these things, uh, you know, fall into place and if we don't get new variants of concern and we on with the vaccination coverage, I think I think that should be possible. I don't see why not. Two very long sentences, but where you were headed there, which is where I was pushing you, is end the equality. We hopefully end the pandemic, at least what it looks like. Gabriella, two yes, sentences. I, I think it is possible if we if we change the model. Yeah. If we radically overhaul it and understand the enormous urgency and the importance of equitable distribution, which means um, production at scale across the world where needed. Um, and, and the more it looks expensive or different, it's, it's not, and it doesn't have to be. It's about distributing those resources differently. At the moment, they are being hoarded by a few companies and a few shareholders that can be invested to really transform the way we're addressing the pandemic. Yeah. John? I think greater cooperation, greater solidarity, is the route to ending this pandemic, uh, whether we end it in 2022 or in 20, 2023, we need to reinstate that cooperation and, and solidarity. Thank you. Seth? I don't disagree with Gabriella, but distributed vaccine across the world is not going to happen in time for this year. Today, we have to get the vaccines out. The best we know right now is they protect against severe disease and death. And we got to do it before there is a variant that changes the equation. But right now, we have the tools and the issue is making those available to everybody who needs them across the world. And we can do that. Yeah, we have to get ahead of the next, the worst variant that we face. And the way we do that is to try and get the majority of the world vaccinated wherever they are in the world. Final word, Mike. We won't end the virus uh, this year. We may never end the virus. These viruses, the pandemic viruses, end up becoming part of the ecosystem. What we can end is the public health emergency. And that's why the Director General, Dr. Tedros, declared that emergency the end of January 2020. The issue is, it's the death. It's the hospitalizations. It's the disruption of our social, economic, political systems that's caused the tragedy, not the virus. The virus is a vehicle. It's, it's how society has reacted to that virus and the presence of it. And as Gabriella said, long-standing inequities in hospital, in health uh, access, long-standing social inequities, huge in, in, internal inequities within countries, not just between countries. So yes, we have a chance to end the public health emergency this year, but it won't end if we don't. And that's the reality, uh, that this tragedy will continue. Uh, there is a chance. And remember in this, people talk about pandemic versus endemic, this word endemic. Endemic malaria kills hundreds of thousands of people. Endemic HIV, endemic violence in our inner cities. Endemic in itself does not mean good. Endemic just means it's here forever. 
What we need to do is get to low levels of disease incidence with maximum vaccination of our populations so nobody has to die. That's the end of the emergency, in my view. That's the end of the pandemic. All right, the market open is next. Plenty more on the show to come. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Wednesday and the smiling thumbs up there from the New York Stock Exchange and a better tone to markets too after Tuesday's across the board slump that took the Nasdaq below a key technical level. That said, the buy and dip strategy giving the bears the slip once again, as you can see, though, wow, look at that for the Nasdaq under a bit of pressure in early trade too. video game maker Electronic Arts moving higher for a second session. Investors believe it could be a takeover target after Microsoft's mega deal for Activision Blizzard and more fallout from Tuesday's merger. Sony shares tumbling more than 12 percent in Tokyo trade today as investors weigh the newly competitive video game landscape for its PlayStation platform. Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, the last of the big U.S. financials to report earnings, both firms beating profit expectations and seeing shares move higher. Bank of America seeing a 28 percent profit jump. Now back to one of our top stories today, too, and 5G turbulence. Several international airlines cancelling and altering flights to U.S. airports over safety concerns. Emirates is one of them, and our Richard Quest spoke to the company's president in an exclusive interview. The truth be known, we were not aware of this until yesterday morning. To the extent that it was going to uh, compromise the safety of operation of our aircraft and just about every other 777 operator to and from the United States and within the United States. It came to a head. It was known by the U.S. operators probably a little bit more than we knew. And we have evidence of letters have been written to the uh, Secretary of Transport in the U.S. government alerting that group to the what was what was uh, likely to happen and its consequences. So we were aware of a 5G issue, okay? We are aware that everybody is trying to get 5G rolled out. After all, it's the super cool future of, uh, of whatever it may be, communication and information flow. We were not aware that the power of the antennas in the United States have been doubled compared to what's going on elsewhere. We were not aware that the antenna themselves had been uh, put into a vertical position rather than a slanting position. So on that basis, we took that decision late last night to suspend all our services until we had clarity. What do you make of this situation? As, as somebody who what one might describe as, a, as one of the elder statesmen of the industry, uh, I guess that's a, way, a polite way of saying you've been around a while. Um, but you... certain. You've seen many things. What do you make of a situation where we can get to a position of 5G, which is in other European airports quite safely, and yet the way the rollout has been done in the United States has caused basically potential chaos? I guess I need to be as candid as I normally am. And I'd say this is one of the most delinquent, utterly irresponsible issues, subjects, call it what you like, I've seen in my aviation career. Somebody should have told them a long time ago that it would compromise safety of operation of aircraft in metropolitan areas with catastrophic consequences if this was allowed to continue. I think that message got through at a very, very late stage, and that is why you see the suspension. 
Joining us now, Nicholas Callio, President and CEO of American uh, Airlines for America, which speaks for several big airlines in the United States. Nick, I know you were listening to that. Um, utterly irresponsible, uh, cat- catastrophic risks potentially being taken. It seemed like a communications catastrophe. What happened here in your mind? Well, this issue has been ongoing for a long time, Julian. First of all, thank you for having me. And it is irresponsible. We filed comments, we, Airlines for America, uh, as well as the Transportation uh, Department uh, and the Federal Aviation Administration with the Federal Communications uh, Commission over time. And basically, we pointed out the dangers of the bandwidth problem uh, and the fact that there could be interference with radio altimeters because of how close the spectrum uh, was to where the altimeters are used. And we don't feel like we got a very good hearing. Basically, we feel like we're ignored. So this situation festered and it became more and more intense as the deployment was about to happen. And you know, for the Federal Aviation Administration and the Department of Transportation, the bottom line on everything is safety, safety for passengers, safety for cargo. And that's something they cannot compromise on. So we kept making our case Uh, We felt like we were ignored for a long time, but the fact of the matter was all sorts of planes were going to be canceled, the whole fleets were going to be grounded. It was a a very untenable situation. The good news is, is that the administration, uh, right up to the president, uh, the secretary of transportation, uh, National Economic Council, aviation stakeholders across the board, both the manufacturers uh, and the airlines got together and the telecommunications companies finally started talking. Highly complex technical issues here that need to be worked out almost on a tower-by-tower basis. So we're at a good place right now. Uh, The problem is not solved, and we've got a lot of work to do, and everybody needs to keep doing this work with a real sense of urgency to get it done so that planes can keep flying and we can deploy 5G at the same time. I mean, it might be a good point to be at in that we're now seemingly finally communicating and that risks, to your point, were avoided for the most part, but not without significant disruptions to some of the international airlines. And we heard from the president of Emirates there that said they were in some way bewildered by not understanding what the risks were and and, um, the significant power of the 5G role that that was taking place in the United States. Um, Nick, who is at fault here? Because the telecom companies that obviously have just suspended the decision uh, temporarily, we assume, are blaming the FAA and saying they dragged their feet. Is the FAA at fault? Uh, well, I don't think so. I think the FAA is processing things the way they normally do. And it's lower than some other agencies because of the safety factor, which cannot be compromised. Uh, if, want, if you want to cast blame, and I think that's probably not a very good exercise, uh, the Federal Communications Commission at some point needs to open up and at least answer some of the questions, which they never do. We filed a number of comments with them. We sent petitions to them. They don't even answer them. So, but let's put the blame aside. We've got the problem. We've got to solve the problem. And that's taking collaboration and it's collaboration between Verizon and AT&T, the airlines, the manufacturers like Boeing and Airbus um, and uh, Collins and uh, Honeywell. So we're focused on going forward and making sure that the problem gets solved because there could be significant disruptions if the problems aren't solved. This is not something that's going to go away overnight and it's going to take a lot of cooperation from all the different parties 
to get this done. And that's why I say right now, we're in a good place. We're listening to each other. Uh, again, these are highly technical issues and the experts are working on them with the FAA. Yeah, and, and I get your point about diplomacy and uh, throwing blame at this stage is uh, perhaps not very helpful. But I, I would, in your case as well, be defending an industry that's been battered and battled over the last two years. And actually, these kind of disruptions are the last thing that was w- that was needed at this moment. Nick, is there an easy fix? Because other nations have managed to roll 5G out without these kind of problems, notwithstanding the fact that this is very different and the frequencies, of course, for some of these planes are, are very similar. So there are technical differences that we have to bear in mind. What is the fix here? Uh, The fix basically is working out where the bandwidth is, the the amount of power used, the tilt of the antenna, the placement of the antennas. So, you know, overseas, what outside the United States, excuse me, what happened was the versions of the Federal Communications Commission and the FAA, their FAA, worked together. In some cases, government stepped in, like in France, to go even further than the fixes or the mitigations that they put in place. So it it has to do with where the antennas are close to the runways, uh, the tilt of the antenna, you can taste it Mm. down rather than up, the amount of power used. And again, in some of these other countries, you know, the claim that if it because it's been done in other countries, it can be done here. The FCC really sold bandwidth too close to the spectrum that the yes. radio altimeters use, and that was that compromises the radio altimeters. So there are mitigations that can be put in place. It's just going to take time to do it. But the fix can be almost immediate tower by tower. This is now we're not talking about never deploying. We're talking about getting it right, taking into account what the dangers are to flying and to the altimeters, because our safety systems often rely on the radio altimeter. It's not just, you know, how far you are from the ground. It also can have an, an impact on the reverse thrusters that will stop an airplane, you know, when, you, when you're uh, landing, um, all sorts of different things like that. Yeah. Nick, I have about 10 seconds, but very quickly, would you be in favor, once we fix this, of an investigation just to work out what happened and how we make sure something like this doesn't happen again? I think that'll happen naturally with the Congress. The Congress is very interested yes. in this issue and how yes. this happened. I agree. Nick, thank you for your time. Nick Kelly, President you, and CEO of Airlines for America. Great to chat to you as always. Okay, coming up, making international payments frictionless. Strike expands into Argentina as it seeks to expand people's access to digital payments. The colorful CEO joins us next. Breaking news into CNN. The U.S. Secretary of State is in Kiev meeting his Ukrainian counterpart and moments ago discussed helping Ukraine defend itself in the event of further Russian aggression. This after U.S. approved $200 million in security assistance to Ukraine last month. We have given more security assistance to Ukraine uh, in the last year than at any point since 2014. And as I say, we're doing that on a sustained basis. The deliveries are ongoing, again, as recently as the last few weeks. And more are scheduled in the coming weeks. Should Russia uh, carry through with any aggressive intent and uh, renew its aggression and invade Ukraine, we'll provide additional material beyond that that is already uh, in the pipeline and that uh, will further aid in, uh, in, in defending Ukraine. 
Okay, making global payments as instant, easy and pretty much free as using social media. That's the mission of Strike, a digital wallet built on Bitcoin's payment protocol known as the Lightning Network. Now, Strike has just launched in Argentina. It's already present in El Salvador and thinking about further expansion across Latin America, where many people have no access to traditional banks, are battered by high inflation and lack trusting governments and unstable monetary systems. Joining us now is Jack Mallis, the founder and CEO of Strike. Jack, Happy New Year and welcome back. I'm sure many of my viewers will remember our first conversation, but uh, you are back. And I just want you to remind my viewers, if they didn't watch our previous conversation, what's the vision of Strike? What are you aiming to achieve? Julia, I'm back. Did you miss me? (laughs) Um, Of course you did. Yeah, so here's the mission at Strike, Julia. With Bitcoin, not only do we have the best monetary asset in human history, we have the best monetary network in human history. What do I mean by that, Julia? For the first time ever, we can escrow value. We can move money across borders, across space, across time, from a consumer to a merchant. We can move a bare instrument from A to B at no cost and instantly. And so that is something, Julia, Visa can't do, Western Union can't do, PayPal can't do that. It is an innovation in a payments experience. And so what Strike does is not speculate on the price of Bitcoin, whether it goes to the moon, whether it staggers a little bit longer, it doesn't matter to us, is that we connect your bank account, stable coins, your cash collateral, and use this monetary payment network to escrow the value under the hood as a superior payments rail and a superior payments experience compared to the visas and the Western unions of the world. Yeah, and what stood out to me in our last conversation was the cost, because you only charge execution costs. And this is critical, particularly when we're talking in parts of the world, and we'll come to it like Argentina, remittance costs in places like that are multi-percentage points. Talk to me about the cost of doing this, too, for, for individuals that are using the product. Julia, it doesn't cost us anything. Think about it. Why does Western Union charge 20% sometimes? Well, because every single month they have rent to pay in 200 countries. You know what rent I got to pay? Just this gorgeous empty closet. I don't have any sunken costs. I don't have any fixed costs. Bitcoin solved a lot of the monetary functions that we know as very expensive with cryptography and with math. And so I can escrow a bare instrument in Bitcoin. It's worth the same amount in Chicago as it is in London, as it is in Nigeria, as it is in Argentina. And I can zip it around the world instantly and for free. And so the novel thing about what we do, though, Julia, is that we don't want to expose everyone to the inherent volatility. Listen, if you think Bitcoin's going to the moon, own it. If you don't like it, don't touch it. But what we can do is take your dollars and escrow them around the world Uh in over the Bitcoin network. So think about this. What if I wanted to send money from Chicago to London? What we can do is take dollars out of your bank account, turn it into Bitcoin, zip that value to London instantly and for free. You you blink, you'd miss it. It goes so fast and it costs nothing. And then we turn it back into British pounds. And so a Western Union payment that may take four days and charge you 10% because they got to pay rent in, in the capital of the UK. Well, didn't cost me anything and it happened in less than a second. That's the innovation and that's how we use Bitcoin, the monetary network. 
Yeah, and this is the speed that, that's key here because to your point about Western Union or other places that can do this, there will be people watching this saying, hey, but isn't that what you do in US dollars? But it's the speed of transaction that takes place here that you knock out a lot of the, the sort of volatility and the risk, the slippage risk, as it's called in the industry of the transaction between currencies, which is key here too. Talk to me about the Argentinian launch. Why this part of the world? And, and what's the role of stable coins to our point about broader volatility? What's the role that that's going to play too? Yeah, you got it. So Argentina is a country that's had eight currency crises since their central bank was founded. They created the Argentine peso uh, and tethered it to the dollar, but never fully dollarized, Julia. So their currency is rapidly devaluing and inflation is going to exceed 50%. So you're talking about a place that uses the dollar as unit of account. Demand for the dollar is so high that in parallel black markets, it's worth twice as much Uh, And so what we want to do is extend this global monetary network that's better than Visa, better than Western Union, and give them superior payments. Now, the trick is, how do I replicate the Chase Bank that we have in the U.S. in Argentina? You cannot buy and move more than $200 a month in Argentina. They ban it because more use of dollars in a credit system is going to put a run on their federal reserves of the bank. And so how do I get around? How, how do I, I, I want to give them dollar cash collateral that they can use. If they want more exposure to Bitcoin, go get it. If they want less, stay in some dollar cash collateral. And then we use that collateral. We use that dollar balance to move money over the lightning network. And so our solution in El Salvador at first was to use stable coins. Our solution in Argentina is to use stable coins. It's a novel way for us to get dollars into other parts of the world where traditional banking systems aren't an option for us. And so we use stable coins as the equivalent to the Chase Bank that I use here in the United States. What are the government and the authorities in Argentina saying to you? Because it's funny, I I watched your progress in El Salvador and I saw one of the rating agencies saying to El Salvador, because obviously we know the president there has his own interest in in, in Bitcoin specifically, saying that their holdings and the loss of value of their Bitcoin holdings is actually undermining the broader financial system um, because it's putting their credit rating profile at risk. And we know with these countries that matters for how they raise money. It matters for investment. So the sort of a crossover here of assets and concerns. Jack, what, so what are the authorities in Argentina saying? And is this sort of separation of, um, sort of church and state here, for want of a better phrase, important in your mind? You know what I think is interesting, Julia, is it doesn't matter. Think about it this way. Um, when you operate on an open monetary network, a global open monetary network, you know whose opinion matters? The consumer. And that's it. There's nothing they can do about it. If the consumer elects a better financial experience through us or through anyone that operates on the Bitcoin monetary network, then that's going to be the winner. We saw this in the internet, Julia. The reason I have a Facebook account and not a MySpace account is because Facebook won the experience. When you have an open system where it's free to compete for the consumer's experience, then that's when you see innovation and the consumer elects the winners, not the government. And that's what these people want. And so I'm here to deliver a good experience to people all over the world. And listen, whether some government hates me, some government loves me, you know what? I don't give a bleep. Thank you for bleeping yourself there and saving me the, uh, yeah. the need to do it. Um, it was interesting. I spoke to the head of the IMF about this when El Salvador um, made their decisions. And the IMF chief said to me, um, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily make it a good idea. And I, I know 
you can comment on that, but you don't have to, that you went into the IMF and did a presentation to sort of explain to them what you're doing and, and some of the broader uh, issues and experiences. And I believe you used tortilla chips, raisins and peanuts as part of your presentation. Jack, how was that presentation and how, uh, how was the feedback from the IMF? Yeah, well, the IMF should uh, look in the mirror and say that to themselves. Uh, this is a true story, Julie. I was in uh, the home of a multi-trillion dollar asset manager, and this is the story I told to the IMF, is that right now, in order to move money around the world, uh, think of it as cumbersome raisins. There's, there's tortilla chips and all these raisins, and, and what I did is, if you, if you take the legacy system, you got one tortilla chip on the right, one tortilla chip on the left, right? Uh, and there's all these intermediaries in the middle. There's tortilla chips all in the middle with all these raisins that I equivalented to dollars. They're like, all these dollars, you got to pay rent, there's fixed costs, there's T plus X settlement, there's 30 cent swipe fees that Visa invented out of the sky. There's no logic to that. They're just bullies. And what I did is I said, I can replicate all of this muck of all these tortilla chips, which are legacy institutions and all these raisins, which represent dollars and all the rent all over the world and all the legacy costs that don't make any sense. They only made sense when my grandfather was my age. And I can do the same thing with peanuts. And so I took below to the IMF. I said, here's a tortilla chip that wants to send money across the world. Here's a tortilla chip that wants to receive money across the world. And a peanut, which represents Bitcoin, can get it across the world instantly and for free without the muck of Western Union, without the muck of Visa. There's no swipe fee. There's no intermediaries in this monetary network. And it's going to dematerialize all the existing muck in old stale tortilla chips with disgusting sun-dried raisins. And all we have to do is take the peanuts to remove them all. Now, listen, IMF, <laughs> you don't want to touch, you don't want to touch the, ra- uh, the peanut, then then don't. We can inter- we can debit and credit from bank accounts. We could use stable coins. We're just using Bitcoin to better escrow value in a way that Visa has no chance. Jack, what was their response? We need to go and have lunch now because we're starving. Never mind anything else. <laughs> they, I, I, they, there are things I can't disclose, but uh, the IMF is very entertained and excited about a new era of cross-border payments. How about that? I think that was very diplomatic. Jack, I've run out of time and I have 20 more questions for you. You're invited back soon. Come back, please, and talk to me because you've made some really punchy comments about other things. Um, Good luck in Argentina. We shall reconvene and, um, yeah, we'll reconvene on that conversation about filling the wardrobe as well. Jack Vallis, CEO of Strike. Always a pleasure. I'm a punchy guy, Julia. Happy early Valentine's Day. Thanks for having me. Oh, wow. There you go, Jack. You'll get me into trouble. Goodbye. <laughs> we're back after this. <laughs> Welcome back to First Move, and I'll be completely honest. I got so sidetracked there, I blew up the rest of the show. So that's all we've got time for. Stay safe. Connect the world with Larry Badoo is next, and I will see you tomorrow. Um, one day I'll learn to shut up. Great to be with you. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.